10th and L podcast. My name is Philip Coleman, lead pastor and elder at True North Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This is episode four. I want to welcome you back if you've been following along with us. If this is your first episode, uh, this is something we'll be doing weekly. New episodes will be dropping on Wednesday mornings. And so if you'd like to keep up with announcements or uh, things that are happening in the life of True North Church, feel free to subscribe. Uh, If you ever have any questions, comments, or ideas about this podcast, or if you would like to Uh, have us have maybe a certain church member on or feature uh, an event that you're involved in in the life of the church, you can always email us at info, I-N-F-O, at truenorthalaska.com. A couple of announcements coming up for you guys to be aware of. We're going to be having our next prayer night and worship on Thursday, June the 10th. Uh, We'll start at 6 p.m., and we're going to be working through uh, praying for different local churches in Anchorage, not just our own church, in the interest of trying to Uh, understand our place in God's church in the city, that we are just one local body doing some good things right, but that God is using other bodies as well. We want to be praying for them, thinking about them. Uh, We're going to be having our Volunteer Appreciation Day at the Alaska Wildlife Conservation Center on July 17th at 10 a.m., and we're going to cover admission for that. So if you are a volunteer in any area of the life of True North Church, be it kids, students, you're on stage with the worship team, you help us with slides, uh, really anything, We would love to cover the cost of you attending, as well as your kids, your spouse if you have one. Uh, We want your family to be able to come along and enjoy that event on us. And then finally, our second church in the park will be happening on July 18th at 11 a.m. at Cuddy Family Park, just like we did at the end of May. Uh, A reminder to you to bring your own blanket or lawn chair Uh, There won't be seating provided after we are done with the service. We'll be hanging out together. So uh, I'm joined today by Ian Johannes. Uh, Ian is one of our elders here at True North, and he's going to be participating today in our conversation. Ian, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, thank you, Philip. Um, My name is Ian, and I've been an elder at True North Church for about five years and been with the church for nearly its entire entire existence, my wife and I started coming when we had preview services a little over 10 years ago, and so uh, we've been here for the full ride. Uh, I am super excited for to be doing this, but also just of all the things we have going on. I think a while ago as elders, we looked at each other and we said, man, how does a church do everything well? There's so many things that a church should be doing and can be doing, and I'm just proud that we've sort of just started to go down the list and check off those boxes. We're in the process of uh, implementing our vision with our vision implementation team. We're in the process of revamping deacons and trying to do that well. Mm -hmm. We're seeing growth in our church, so uh, I'm just excited to see what's next here at True North, and uh, I I feel like I say this every year, but I've never been more excited about where our church is going uh, right now. Hey, same here. It's really amazing to me as we we build into some of these structures that I think we would say are just indicators of a healthy church. And we're really kind of learning as we go. Our, as our church gets healthier, we, we look around and go, oh, this doesn't have to be that hard. This can yeah. be easier. People can be involved. It's it's amazing to me how much people will put up with if they just like the preaching, you know, in other church contexts. And yeah. I think that it's easy to settle for that least common denominator instead of having a high view of church membership and church health. So I agree with you. It's been great to participate in that process alongside you. Um, If you're listening today, let me remind you that last week on the podcast, I worked through uh, just some Q&A, a general sort of mailbag of questions that I've received personally across my first two and a half years here at True North, as well as a handful of questions that some of our students asked in a Q&A session that we did 
uh, a couple of weeks ago as well. And so we'll be doing that. We're going to kind of call those our mailbag episodes. Um, if you have general questions about theology, the perspective of the church, um, things for just me or my family, um, things about Anchorage, if you're listening to this from outside of the state, we'd be happy to talk about anything that you want to know about. So again, you can always email us and let us know. If you do email us at info at truenorthalaska.com, if you'll use uh, podcast questions in the subject line, that will help us sort through those and, and reach back to them uh, when we arrive at the point that we're ready to address those. So uh, Ian, I'm really excited to talk about today's topic with you, um, but I don't want to steal your thunder. Talk us through a little bit of what we're going to deal with in the next 30 or 40 minutes. Yeah, great. So today we're going to talk about the idols of children and family. And um, just as a primer, I think we often see things that are good in our lives that we want or things that we have become idols. And and so this is definitely one of them, children and family. So the four main ways we're going to tackle that topic is first, I want to talk about what does our world, our culture, our society, what does it have to say about children? How do people who are not believers view their children? How do they parent their kids? Second, just to talk about how that idolatry of children affects us as we grow up. If we've been idolized, um, if we've been parented in a way that puts us as little kings, how do we deal with that? What, does Jesus have anything to say about that as we become adults? How do we deal with that transition? I want to talk about healthy parenting. So that's the third thing is maybe what's a what's a way that a Christ follower can parent their kids and parent them well. And then lastly, you t- you tackled this uh, last Sunday when you preached of just what what hope does Jesus offer for people who want a family and don't have it? Whether that's you want a spouse, whether you want kids, and God's not giving that to you right now. Uh, what answers does God have for somebody in that situation? So let's just jump right in with the first topic. Philip, I will go ahead and ask the question to you. What does our American society, our culture, uh, what kind of perspective do they have on children? What's their purpose? What role do they play? Uh, how do grown-ups live with the kids in their lives? Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I think that, like many things, people who don't know Jesus, and that's what we mean when we say the culture or, or the world, we're talking about a system that's not set up to honor God, that doesn't really believe that you can have newness of life in Christ. I think it's going to push kids to one extreme or the other. Um, most of the time, what I see is that kids are viewed by their parents as either really good or really, really bad. I find very little middle ground. Um, I think that you could argue that the sort of like, by the time you have your third or fourth kid, that apathy is sort of feels more like middle ground. But I still think if that if that third or fourth kid had been the first kid, the parents' response would have been pretty extreme, probably. Um, you know, my wife and I are foster parents, and mm-hmm. so and I know you're very close to a couple of other families that have gone through that process adoption. To me, even the need for a foster system indicates that people who don't know Christ see their kids as a burden, as worthless. I mean, even to the point of neglect, being willing to abandon them, abuse them, things like that. And I think the opposite of that, and maybe sometimes even the reaction of that, we, we meet people who are wounded from their past and they tend to run to the other extreme sometimes, is that they elevate their kids to a position of authority in their home where they're not just valuable, but they actually have a shaping, leading voice in the lives of themselves and the grown-ups around them. And I think that ultimately what that does is that displaces good authority. It displaces authority of a loving parent. In a school setting, it displaces the authority of a good teacher. Certainly at church sometimes, it can displace the authority of a good volunteer in the classroom. Um, Coaches, things like that. So I think that what I'm trying to get at is parenting without Jesus is selfish because anything without Jesus is selfish. There's really, I think, two broad approaches here, two categories. And I'm going to borrow some language from a book that my wife and I have used. Uh, We, in our home with our daughter, uh, we reference a book that's called Parenting with Love and Logic, 
It's a book that I recommend with some caveats because it certainly has uh, some extremes itself that I think are not always helpful. But the general idea is that good parenting uh, functions such that your kids are um, consulted by you, that you're helping them, but you're not necessarily saving them. So that's what we're going to get in a minute. But I want to talk about the two wrong ways of parenting that I think I see in our culture. So first is what we would call a drill sergeant parent. And if you don't know if you're a drill sergeant parent, some of you, as soon as I say that, you're going to remember who your mom or your dad was, and you're going to nod your head in your car where you're listening to this and go, yeah, I know what that looks like. But a way to self-diagnose is to ask yourself, what kind of language do you use? And, and I'll say this again, just as a quick aside. These parenting styles are not just limited to people who actually have had children biologically. These are the ways that grown-ups approach kids. So if you're single, even if you're like college age and you are around kids sometimes, you can start to gauge your parenting style having not even had your own kids yet. So drill sergeants use command language. Things like, you're going to do it now, I don't care what you think, you're going to do it because I said so. And then specifically when a child has an emotional response, like a negative emotional response, a drill sergeant parent will begin to uh, call out, sometimes even to punish or discipline that. So for instance, you've seen a parent before yell at their kid, stop crying. Don't, we're not going to cry right yeah. now. No, don't do that to me here. It's very much, I'm in control, you're not. And the tactics of a drill sergeant parent look like lectures when things have gone wrong and threats when they haven't gone wrong yet, but they look like they might. So again, a little more language here. Telling your kid, I told you so. Phrases like, if you would just do X, well, then this wouldn't have happened to you. Yeah. Or, or if you don't do this, then you're going to lose that, or there will be no that. It's, it's feeling like, I think it comes from a heart and a parent who fears that if they don't attach pain and some kind of significant negative consequence on the front end and threaten their kid with that, that they're not going to have authority. And at the bottom line to me is it tells the kid that the grown-up is better than the kid. It's saying to your child, I'm better than you, that, that I don't really think you can think for yourself. And so, therefore, I have to tell you how to think, and I have to tell you what to do. Um, and then again, you know, just as more evidence, sometimes the drill sergeant parent, if something goes wrong, let's say you're at life group, a lot of parents have experienced this. There's a crash the next room over. Yeah. You run in. The drill sergeant parent assumes that their child was involved. Um, and maybe you just have the kid that's the instigator. I'm not saying that, that if that's your case, then you can do this gently in a way that's kind and loving. But when you assume that it's always your kid's fault, when you're willing to punish them, even for accidental behavior... Those are indicators to me of being a drill sergeant. So that's the really negative extreme end where a child maybe isn't worth what they ought to be. The other end of the spectrum to me is helicopter parenting. Yep. Um, helicopter parenting, whereas drill sergeants are commanding, helicopter parents use coddling language. Uh, oh, do you need help? Did that person hurt you? Do you want me to talk to that person? Do you want me to call the school? Do you want me to address this issue for you in your life? Um, and, and the tactics of a helicopter parent are to rescue a child when anything is wrong. And when I say wrong, what I mean is if that child is experiencing anything negative, if the child would say that their plans or their day or their life has been disrupted, the helicopter parent tries to rescue from that yeah. or preemptively protect. So seeking to prevent negative experiences in the child's life. Uh, oftentimes a helicopter parent is even willing to ignore their own needs in order to cater to what they believe is going to be maybe not even what's best for their kid, but what's going to keep their kid the most happy. Um, helicopter parents rescue from situations in which the child is uncomfortable at all. And it's not because they really care that much about the kid. This is why I'm saying this is a selfish form of parenting. Maybe the way I'm talking yeah. about it is sounding like, well, that's good. It's just protecting the kid and it's all about the kid, but it's really not. It's the parent not having the capacity to sit by 
while the child is sad or upset. It, the, the parent can't process their child being in pain. And that's what I mean when I say it's an overvaluing or an unnecessary level of authority because the kid's whims, they're, they're just their random mood swings begin to dictate the life of the whole family. And would you say that's, in a way, that's easier than allowing your child to experience discomfort or go through things without uh, doing it for them? I think in the short term it is. Yeah, I would I would say personality has a lot to do with it. Um, in my home, my wife and I each lean more toward one of these ends than the other. And for the spouse who is more drill sergeant oriented, um, we have to be so careful that we are not so consumed with behavior that we miss the child along the way. Uh, for the spouse that's consumed with more of the helicoptering element, they have to be sure that they acknowledge that behavior matters um, and that they don't skip over behavior just because the, the child is so valuable. Um, but yeah, I think I've seen um, like uh, aunts and uncles the first time that they hang out with their niece or nephew mm-hmm. oftentimes lean toward helicopter because yeah. they're scared to death that they're going to get in trouble if the kid comes back with a bruise or a cut on their knee. And the parents like, I don't know, it's one of a hundred cuts on my kid. Like <laughs> once you've had kids long enough, I think you, some of this begins to work itself out. But not always. We see teenagers, even grown adults, it's where we're going to go in a minute, who've been babied, I would say, this way. Uh, and it's never actually resolved itself into adulthood, and that can yep. be very damaging. Um, yep. To me, what a helicopter parent communicates to their child is that the child is helpless. It's not actually um, valuing the child or telling the child, you're worth this for me. It's saying, if I'm not here to protect you, then nobody else will. You can't protect yourself. You need me. You need me to do things for you. Um, oftentimes, I have a few friends that are school teachers, and they see this happen frequently. Uh, a helicopter parent is the parent who calls the school. Mm. and who says uh, that their child must be a victim no matter what happens. I mean, there are situations, this is going to sound extreme, but these are real things. There are situations in which a child could run into the wall at school and get a bruise on their head. No other kid is involved. No adult was around. And the helicopter parent still assumes somebody did something because their child could have never or would have never done that to themselves. Um, And I think that the way that it works itself out in in a community setting is whereas the drill sergeant parent runs into the next room at life group and is already red in the face, is already worked up, is, is angry. The helicopter parent, maybe they just need to make sure their kid is safe and then they're going to move on. That's all they're worried about. Like they're not going to require their kid to deal with the consequences of messing with, um, you know, apologizing, things like that. And I think kids pick up on this. I think kids turn this into sort of this verbal tug of war back and forth where they know that if they can whine and cry, they can really decrease their penalty. They can yep. get out on, on good behavior a little bit, which really they're getting out on bad behavior, I would say. But eventually in that tug of war, the child wins. Kids just have more energy than we do. They're resilient. They like it. They like the fight a little more than we do. And I think that's where we see helicopter parents get beat down to the point that in many ways their kids are left to raise themselves. So, And we're teaching them, we're teaching them that if you show weakness and emotion and pain, then you'll get what you want, what you want. And that's a terrible thing to teach your children. It is. Yeah, it is. So I want to hear from your perspective. Let's take that to its extreme. If, if a child is parented that way, um, and I think that, you know, you'd hope that children raised by both parents maybe get a little bit of, of both along the way. Um, but maybe a, a child of a single parent or just somebody who grew up in a house where, where Jesus was not valued, there was no semblance of Christ's plan for the family, um, what does it feel like to be parented this way? And then more specifically, and I think this is going to be a really interesting conversation, how can a person who was parented poorly course correct? If they meet Jesus in their 20s or their 30s, what hope does Jesus have for a person like that? Yeah, that's great. And I think that um, the answer to both is going to be really similar to, to people who were 
parented by a drill sergeant who commanded everything of them and was kind of always on their case, and then also for a person who was coddled or was made the little king of their family. The answer is, I think we have to believe what the gospel says about this. And so I want to explain what I mean by that. So I'll start with, if you've been raised by the drill sergeant type parents, um, you probably find that you feel like you never measure up. Like you always have a voice inside of you that second guesses the choices Mm -hmm. that you make or what does this person think of me? Uh, I know this because that's a lot of the stuff I deal with. I struggle with those feelings a lot. And here's what I've found. I've found that Jesus makes us new in the eyes of God the Father. And if Jesus saved us, then God looks at us and he sees not our shortcomings, which exist, but he sees the perfection of Jesus. And so this may seem weird to some people who like have healthy relationships with themselves, but I always like the part of scripture that describes us as sinful and wicked. Um, so Ephesians 2 says we were children of wrath. And I'm like, yeah, I can identify with that. Like, I already think that about myself sometimes. So in a way, it's validating, right? It's validating to feel like, okay, the Bible understands when I see these shortcomings in myself, God knows that about me. Mm -hmm. He says, yeah, you you did mess up. You are wrong. You do make mistakes. You are sinful. You are wicked. And, And that is validating. But of course, we have to keep reading our Bibles, right? So if you keep reading in Ephesians, chapter two, verse four says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So whenever we fall short, when we inevitably make mistakes or mess up, we get to say, okay, sure, of course I did. I'm a child of wrath right here. Like, that's me. That's what Scripture has to say about me. That's what I believe. But we have to remember. We have to remember that God is not the Father who's waiting for us to mess up, who's always assuming we're in the wrong, who's disappointed. God's not annoyed with us. Mm. I think we're used to that. If you've Mm -hmm. been parented by parents who are drill sergeant types, they're like, oh, gosh, you again. You're always the problem. And God doesn't look at us that way. God sent Jesus to be the perfection that we couldn't be. So when God looks at us, That's what he sees. He sees Christ, and he doesn't see our failures. Mm. And so that is true, but we have to start believing that about ourselves. Like, I think psychologists, performance coaches, they talk about this inner dialogue that you have Mm -hmm. with yourself. Like, Mm -hmm. you always have this running dialogue, and that dialogue sometimes can be really negative and really hurtful. And I think we have to flip that and say, okay, if God says this about me, then I need to say this about myself. Like, my dialogue needs to say, I am a new creation in Jesus. My shortcomings, my failures that exist have been paid for with the cross of Christ. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, one of my parents who has repented now and, and has very much owned their role in my life uh, was absolutely um, more naturally like a drill sergeant. And it's interesting because I have this concept, I think many Christians do, that when we fail God, maybe he, he kind of comes into our room, he gives us the discipline, and then he walks away. And just leaves us there to just deal with it, and and I, I feel that maybe in my own life that 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 real thing that happened where my parent would do that, come in, to distribute the discipline. Oftentimes the door was then shut. I was left to just sit in it, which I'm not saying is necessarily even wrong in every context, but it was regular enough that it trained me to believe that before I can apologize to a person, I need like there has to be this almost punishment time. Yep. And and not to take the conversation totally to derail it, but I see that even in my marriage now where if I know that I'm wrong, it is it feels almost impossible to me to immediately apologize because I expect that it will be disqualified. And it drives my wife crazy. She's like 
if you know you're sorry, why do we have to have this long either period of silence where we go away from each other or you have to go beat yourself up or you have to talk all the way back through what happened? Yep. Like you have to give yep. yourself a lecture before you'll apologize to me? Yeah, so I think the ramifications of this are are a big deal and are very, very real. But talk to us a little bit about people who maybe grew up under helicopter parenting. Yeah, so I think the answer is surprisingly sim- similar. And as I was thinking about this, I was remembering uh, about a week ago, we were reading our gospel storybook Bible with our kids, and we're reading about the story of Josiah. Uh, he was the eight-year-old king in Second Chronicles. And this was fun. My oldest is eight, and so it was fun to talk about what he might do if he was a king. Um, and it's funny because as a parent, you know, you can see how excited they would be about that, but then you also, like, realize, oh, man, you don't want this kid to That's be right. king of a whole country. Uh, the first thing you say is, okay, like, they would be really bad kings, you know, my eight-year-old. Because we asked him, what would you do if you yeah. were king? And it was like, everybody gets free Legos, and <laughs> if you were hungry, then you would get anything you wanted. And I was like, oh, man, that, that's not going to work out. But we said, okay, great. But the other thing you realize is... I don't think anyone who was made king at eight year old eight years old could be happy, right? Mm-hmm. I don't think if you had the weight of that responsibility on you. I mean, we think about like in our culture, we think about like child actors mm-hmm. and how they turn out, yeah. and they turn out terrible mm-hmm. because uh, they have all this weight and pressure on them that makes them an uh, idol in people's lives or a figurehead of something. And they're mm-hmm. like kids; they need to be able to make mistakes and figure out life and have a childhood. So. I think the gospel releases us from that, releases us from the need to be a child king. Mm-hmm. And it's inevitable when people put all their hopes and dreams onto a kid that eventually you're going to break or crack under pressure, and we need saving from that pressure. Uh, I, I think back to my career as a high school basketball athlete, <laughs> and basketball is big where I grew up, and I remember feeling so much pressure to be successful for our school, for our community, and uh, our parents were like these crazy fans who would yell at the refs and be cheering, and there was just all this immense pressure, <laughs> and uh, and I just remember feeling that. And the thing is, is that Jesus says we don't have to be that, mm-hmm. that we can rely on him for perfection, and we don't have to become this great king or win the game or be a perfect child that our parents you know, needed us to be or wanted us to be. And so when we do that, we can first just feel secure that God doesn't need us to be those things, that God has never asked us to be perfect because Jesus already died for our perfection on the cross. And then ultimately, when people put that weight on us, it gives us an opportunity to point them back to the only thing that will fulfill them. So um, I'm sure you've experienced as a as a pastor, right? People say, "Oh, you're on stage. I'm going to put all the weight and troubles of my life onto you." Oh yeah. Right? You used to speak oh, yeah. with authority, so you mm-hmm. must have all the answers, and you've got to routinely point them to Christ because you're going to eventually fail those people if they put their their hope in you. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, we all medicate some way when there's pressure. And you talked about um, child movie stars. I mean, to the point that. If you run across somebody who's a celebrity and they seem particularly screwed up, oftentimes one of the very first things in their online biography is that they were a child star. And I think we all know that what that means so well that we go, oh, okay, well. Yep. And I mean, these people get deep into drugs, alcohol, the, the money and the celebrity that that brings give them access to things they should never have. So I want to draw a parallel. I think people who are in church leadership, especially in healthy churches, can be tempted to do the same thing. We see a lot of pastors fall more and more and more, and it's a it's a devastating tragedy. There's nothing right or justifiable about it. 
But these guys are looking for an outlet. Yep. I mean, they're they're trying to find a way and a place, a space in their life where they don't have to be the man. Absolutely. And so, uh, not to just make a shameless plug here, but man, life group is such an important thing for anybody at any level to be in community. I would argue that community is actually a spiritual discipline. It mm. takes you have to fight for it. It's hard. You don't always want to do it, and it shapes you. It shapes what you love. It shapes what you value, and it gives you a place to be a person who. Even if you grew up the way that you're describing, who's kind of needed to be the center of attention, you can relearn that, but you have to relearn that relationship with people. I don't think you can just read a book and be different. You have to work that out with people who are going to affirm that you don't have to be perfect, that you can have flaws, that you can repent and and be forgiven. Yeah, and here's the last thing I wanted to say about people who are maybe children of helicopter parents Mm -hmm. who have been coddled growing up or made to be little kings, is I also think if you grew up to think that your life shouldn't have suffering in it or that the point of going to church was that so you could learn to do the right thing so you could have the right things in life and get the good outcomes that you're really misunderstanding what the bible has to say about christian christianity as a whole and christian suffering so i think you have to have a good doctrine of what christian suffering is um, and there's lots of scripture that talks about this. I just picked my favorite that I want to read. It's Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, and it says this. It says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So if you're struggling with that, if you're like, man, I didn't know that life was going to be so hard. Or I thought if I did all, if I thought if I went to church 52 times a year that I wouldn't experience suffering, I think you just got to read your Bible more. Like I really do. You, there's a lot of suffering in Scripture, and you could almost just open it and pick a page, and you'd experience some suffering and see what God has to say about it. But, um, but I really think that you need to work on that doctrine of, of how God describes suffering and what Christian suffering looks like. Okay, so to... To change gears a little bit, we're thinking of ourselves growing up as adults, but now lots of us have moved into the stage where we're parents now. Mm-hmm. So we get to turn around and say, okay, how do we do this the right way, right? What advice do you have for parents um, as we always have new parents in, in our congregation? Mm-hmm. What's a, what's a like an example of a right way to go about parenting our children? Yeah, so I think that the first thing I want to say is we've we've pretty robustly dug into the two extremes of selfish parenting and then also what that does to you. The easiest course for most people, and the thing I think that they try by default, is they either, if they liked the way that their parents did it, they try to copy their parents. If they didn't, they run to the opposite thing. And they tell themselves, if they run to the opposite thing, it will necessarily be better, and it rarely is. Yeah, and you know, I find sometime in my parenting that even if I didn't like the way my parents did it, I still find myself just defaulting to, yeah. oh, this is the way. Why am I do- Why am I talking to my kids like this? Why do I do it this way? And I go, oh, yeah, that's the way my dad talked to me. And I'm just like copy and pasting. It's a crazy crazy how moldable we are. Yeah. That way. I, well, we are. We're very programmable as people. And I yep. think that uh, it's one of the indicators that you're getting older, as a man at least, uh, you get a gut, and you and that's not fun. You have to go buy new pants just because you've been eating the stuff you always ate. And then you hear your dad's voice come out of your mouth. Or or if you were raised without a dad, you hear your mom's voice or an, a man that was in your life, and you go, you're right. You, you, it kind of grosses you out. 
but you also already said it to your kids. So you're like, I don't want to have this existential breakdown in front of my eight year old who I really just need to clean their room and go to bed. So anyway, okay. So I'm going to recommend what I would call a third way. We've talked about helicopter parents. We've talked about drill sergeant parents. Again, I'm borrowing a lot of language from Foster Klein's book, Parenting with Love and Logic. Uh, This is not supposed to be a mini parenting conference on this podcast today. So I just want you to know if you want to dig into that more, that's where I'd start is that book. Um, Read it with somebody else. Um, Take it with a grain of salt. Understand that it was written into a culture that's 30 or 40 years ago. And so some things have changed. But um, unselfish parenting, I think, is impossible without Jesus. Dr. Klein's book is not written necessarily to Christians, but some of the things he recommends I think are pretty impossible if we're not living outside of ourselves because we're not just looking to escape from wrong thinking. That would just send us to the other end of you know the spectrum, the other extreme from what we experienced. What we want to do is embrace a parenting philosophy that sources its power because it takes power to deal with kids. It, we want to source our power from our union with Jesus. So it's not performance-based, right? We're not trying to show Jesus that we're a good parent. We're not trying to prove ourselves to our neighbors. That's not what motivates us. What motivates us is we try to look and see how does God parent us? How does Jesus parent us? That must be a pretty good example. I would, I would argue probably the best example. So what I'm going to argue for in this next couple minutes is a philosophy that I'll call consultation or consultant parenting. Consultant parenting uses cooperative language, whereas the drill sergeant uses commanding language and the helicopter parent uses coddling language. Selfless parents, consultant parents, are able to make suggestions to their children that still include a deadline. I'm not saying to abandon ship on all authority, but what we want to do is place the choice to obey or not in the child's hands, not to scare them so badly that they don't actually have a choice and not to choose for them so that they don't learn how to choose. But then part two is, we require them to deal with the natural consequences of whatever choice they make. So, for instance, instead of demanding obedience like a drill sergeant or for or begging for obedience like the helicopter parent, we communicate in a way that obedience is expected, and then we imply that if the child is willing to be disobedient, then we assume that they are also willing to deal with the consequences of that. So, for instance, if you are able to finish your chores before dinner, this is something that I might say to my daughter, then you may watch TV until dinner is served. This is a better way to say it than turn the TV off and do your chores. Or, hey, baby, I really need you to do that right now. Can you please go right now? Please, I already asked you three times. Can you go upstairs, please? Dinner's going to get cold. We start arguing. We start pleading. Our child doesn't care. It feels good to them to have some authority. If they're anything like my daughter, and I love my daughter, but she's a typical six-year-old, she's going to stick that knife in and twist it a little bit. It's fun to be in charge of the grown-ups. It feels good. Um, What we want to do, I think, when we speak to our kids correctly is we want to describe conditions under which they will do or, or, or we will do something or we will allow something to happen. Another example, I would be happy to take you to the park when you show me that you're able to listen and follow directions at home, kind of scaling up obedience. If you can show me that you're a good listener here then we'll go and hang out with our friend who rides horses. But I'm not going to put you around horses if you're not going to listen to me here. Why would you listen to me there where things are even crazier? And that's the logic element is we're beginning to teach our kids to connect the dots on what I do in the day-to-day, the mundane, very much affects the most important moments in my life. Um, I think we want to try to offer help if we can for a child. But here's the hard thing for the helicopter parent. We have to allow the child to struggle if they choose not to take our help. Mm. We have to stand there and let them do it wrong, knowing full well that it would be much faster and easier for them and us and less painless if we just jumped in and did it for them. And so, for instance, in our family, this looks like including our daughter in cooking and chores, which some people might argue as a six-year-old she's not quite ready for. Well, I would say, how's she going to get ready? 
Yep. We have to we have to let her do it, and we have to let it take a lot longer than it should. And I'll just say, in a year of being foster parents, we have seen immense growth in our daughter when the standard is raised. I find that kids, not always, and we don't want to beat them down when they don't meet that standard, but when we communicate, I think you're capable of this, I believe you can do it, and I just think you need more practice because nobody's good at this the first time, I think kids tend to rise to the occasion. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you know, uh, we've experienced this too, just with the idea of calling kids to, to more, right? That having a high standard for your kids, not because you want to beat them down, but because you think that they're capable. Yeah. I think that they that that stirs something in them where they say, oh, wow, uh, dad thinks I can do all this. Well, I, I, you know, I want to please him. I want to be uh, that person that he thinks I am. Yeah. And, and, a, and we can do it in a way that calls them to more. But we, we've experienced that in our house where we've said, okay, here's all these chores we're going to do. And then they're like, look at, I did my chores and the day goes mm-hmm. a lot better where yeah. if it's us just doing everything for them, then they are like these entitled brats and we're yeah. like so mad at them. Yep. Yeah. So I, I've experienced that firsthand calling them to more. Sure. And I think that there's a spectrum in parenting between protection and preparation. And this has helped me so, so much as a new parent to think this way. Um, I think the drill sergeant parent leans very much into preparation, but really puts the responsibility of learning and growing fully in the child's court in a way that isn't helpful, that takes away the expertise of the parent. And then the helicopter parent stays in protection mode for a long, long time. And so I tend to just think of two percentages here. I think on one extreme, you've got 100% protection and 0% preparation. And then as you slide toward 100% preparation, you slide away from uh, protection. So for instance, a newborn needs all protection and pretty much no preparation at all. You don't need to try to teach your newborn how to not poop in their diaper when they're supposed to eat. Like you can train those habits a little bit, but any parent of a newborn knows that they are the boss for at least the first few months in the house as far as scheduling goes. But then let's say they reach a point where they're walking. Well, that might be 80% protection, right? We still need to cover up the electrical outlets, make sure they're not going to cut their eye on the sharp edges of the furniture, put the medicine away, make sure the home is capable for them. But we do want to prepare them. As they walk, we're teaching them how to walk, where should they walk, what doors can they go in and out of. We're coaching them in those ways. And I would say by the time they get to kindergarten, it's probably 60-40. It still leans a little more toward protection than preparation, but like in our house, through COVID, our daughter needs to have her own masks. If we get to school and she doesn't have a mask, then we're going to go home and get one, but I'm not going to call the office and say, I'm so sorry that we're late today. She's going to go to the office. She can tell them, I forgot my mask today. Nobody's going to be mean to her. And then she learns. She has a a clear connection that next time this is going to happen again if I'm not prepared. And that just continues to slide up, right? As we get to middle school, we're probably 30% protection, 70% preparation, early high school, 2080. And then this is ideal. And this is what probably every helicopter parent hates the idea of. By the time our kid is a junior or senior in high school, we want to be as close to 100% preparation and 0% protection as we possibly can be. And this gets challenging. I would say that those few percentage points of protection still exist around internet access, um, you know, how they're spending their time, whether or not they have a curfew, things that could actually have really major long-term negatives we still want to be careful with. But we probably need to let our kids pick their friends. We probably need to give them a voice in what sport they play. We probably need to be behind them and support them regardless of which elective they want to be in, if it's art or music or whatever. We hopefully will have shaped them well in their younger years such that they can make wise choices. And then just one more quick point. We got to move on to our next question here, but it's really, really important to understand that the love and logic system includes logic and love and the love is empathy. 
When a child makes a mistake, we don't want to rub their face in it. We don't want to make them feel really, really bad about that. We want to have empathy and say, I'm sorry that happened. I, I Man, if I could have changed that, I I wish that I could take this away from you. I'm sorry that's going to hurt. Um, sometimes for our daughter, if, if she suffers in a certain way because of a choice that she made, my wife and I will just try to sit with her in it for a minute mm. and, and help her know that she doesn't move herself outside of our love by having made that bad choice. She just needs to deal with the short-term consequences. So, Ian, I'll throw the ball back to you here for our last question, and this is a bit of a gear shift. Coming out of all this discussion about parenting and kids, I'm sure that some of the folks that are listening really don't relate to this or connect with it at all. Um, what would you say about, is, a, is true about Jesus that comforts us? What about his church offers comfort to those who are without the family that they long for, whether they are unmarried and desire to be, or they're without kids and desire to have children? Okay, so here's here's a truth that applies to everybody, regardless of your family status, kids, no kids, married, single, want to be married, want to have kids. It's that if you think that the primary purpose that God has for your life is to serve your family or to have a family, you're just setting yourself up for failure. And I think it's easier to see on my side of things when I have kids already, I have a spouse, those things did not complete me. And either I had to learn it, oftentimes I had to learn it the hard way, right? That that I need to have a higher purpose than just to be a dad, just to be a husband. And I think it's easier for somebody who doesn't have those things yet or will not have those things at all to go, oh, if I just had this, that's the way we're wired as humans to say, if I just had this. But but we have to learn that lesson that if God's primary, if we think that God's primary purpose for us is family, then we're setting ourselves up for failure. We're missing it. We're missing it. Um, I was listening to you preach on Sunday, and I kept expecting to hear you quote Jesus in Luke. You didn't, so I'm going to do it here now. Uh, when he told the man who wanted to be a disciple, he said, I, first I got to go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, if you don't first hate your father and your mother and your wife and your children and your brothers and your sisters and hate your own life, then sorry, you can't be my disciple. And that's jarring to us. You know, it's it's sort of typical hyperbolic language that Jesus sometimes used, uses to drive a point. But what he's clearly saying here is that you cannot place your family above being a disciple of Jesus. If you try to do that, you can't. You, you just physically can't be a disciple of Jesus if you're going to place your family above that. So I think we've got to preach this truth to ourselves, regardless of if we're single or married, or if we've got kids or no kids, we want kids, that we still, no matter what happens, we can't pr- place that over being a disciple of Jesus. But okay, that's very high level. That's a great thought, Ian, but let's get practical for a minute. Um, what does that mean for somebody who's single, right? If I'm single and I go, I have this desire for children, I have this desire to uh, parent someday, what does that look like? What can the church offer? What can you offer to the church as a Christ follower? Um, and I'm so glad you talked about it on Sunday, about the, all the single people that we have who do serve in our kids' ministry. Uh, I love it. I think it's awesome. I think it says a lot about their spiritual maturity, that they're willing to come in and teach Jesus to kids that don't belong to them, right? They're not obligated. Like, me and you, we have some obligation, right? Someone else is watching our kids, so okay, we'll ter- in turn watch their kids. But no, um, they they don't have any obligation, yet they still choose to serve those kids. I think that's a right and good thing, and I think it's honestly good training for someday if you do have kids. Um, but why not take it one step further? Like if you say, oh, I'm ready to be a dad, there are kids There are kids in our church right now, I could probably name 10, mm-hmm. 10 off the top of my head, who need that influence in their life right now, who could use you as a single 
Christ follower to be pouring into their lives. So I don't think that when all of a sudden you have a biological child that some switch flips and, oh, you know everything about parenting. Yeah. Anyone who's had children knows that that's not true. No. You have this baby and you're like, oh my gosh, what do, what do I do now? And so you are just as qualified as a, as a biological parent to be a father figure, a mother figure, a friend, a caretaker in a, in a sense to these kids that maybe they are missing a mom or a dad or sometimes both. And I mean, I could introduce you to those people this next week. I mean, that's, that's how real that need is in our church. Um, I think of Psalm 68, it says, God is a father to the fatherless. And so what better way to serve his kingdom by acting out the character of God in the community that he's placed you in, I think is beautiful. But um, I know that there's couples who are married and they want kids. They want kids of their own. Mm -hmm. They've struggled with infertility. Mm -hmm. And I think our church could be a hard place to be sometimes if that's you, because you look around, we've got new babies like every month it seems like there's a new baby coming into our church. And I think that's a beautiful thing. It's a great thing. Children are a blessing, but I think that could be hard. And, and so for those people, I, I'd want them to know first that they're not alone. Like it's a pretty common thing that couples struggle with. There's many couples in our own church who are struggling with that right now. I know that they're out there um, and that the church cares for you. But here's what I want to present to you because they're asking, what can I do if, if family isn't the most important thing and maybe it's a God has a higher purpose for my life, what could that be? I, I want to suggest if that's you, that you go read through and pray through Romans chapter 8. God uses in Romans the language of adoption to describe the gospel, to describe what he has done for you and for me. He uses the language of adopting a child. And so I would ask that you read and pray about that. That's the only thing I can tell you to, that you need to do is to, to, to maybe meditate and pray over those verses and what they might mean for your life. But I want to I paint a picture of here's why I get excited about adoption because we've got a lot of adopted kids in our church. I think it's an amazing thing. It gets me fired up to see uh, adopted kids in our church body. It's something I think we should continue to celebrate as a church. And I think, yes, one part of it is good that they're in a better situation, right? Sometimes you think about the trajectory of their lives and go, oh, if this person wasn't adopted, man, they would have lived in poverty. Maybe they would have been abused. Maybe they would have lived in a country where they mm -hmm. could have starved to death. Mm -hmm. I mean, those are real things that these yeah. kids are getting saved from. So I don't want to downplay that. But what gets me more excited is that adoption is that living picture of the gospel, that those parents have said, look what God has done for me, and I want to do something that is going to be an image bearer of that story, right? Me adopting a child is going to point people to the adoption that God did right. of me. And I just think that's beautiful. What I can't think of anything better to do with your life than to use it as a living image of the gospel. And so it speaks to God's goodness in the world. It speaks to... Um, Anybody around who sees that, and sometimes it's obvious, right? Kids are a different skin color of their parents. Yeah. Right? It's hard to miss. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so I think you're just making a statement. You're saying, I've been saved by God, and I want to use my life to save others just like he has saved me. And so if, if you're in that position where you want kids and you can't have them biologically or you've struggled with that, I would just pray that you'd consider 
what foster care, what adoption might look like, what it would tell to the world, and how it would serve God's kingdom if you were to explore something like that. I know it's something you've done personally, so maybe you can tag on to that. Um, but I, I just think that that when we think about a higher calling that Jesus has for our life, that might be part of the mix for some people. Yeah, I agree. And uh, we're about to run out of time, but there's so much that could be said about uh, the way that fertility rates have changed, even in the last 50 years or so. We don't know why. We don't know if it's chemical exposure, processed foods, just stress. Nobody can really put their finger on what's going on. But certainly more and more couples who have this really classic normal hope of having their own kids who have their own skin color and their own hair and their you know look a little bit like their grandpa or whatever all those things that are wonderful good things they may find themselves stuck and i think embracing as early as possible that god might have a different way for you can help you some it can protect you a little bit but it really opens your mind and heart to another person and i would say man the whole foster training process is challenging parts of it are nightmarish in what you're exposed to you get a kid in your house and you begin to know that person and you begin to see them recovering and as their cortisol levels go down because they have stability in your home for the first time, they'll grow a lot and become communicative and begin to take on your mannerisms. And you realize so much of the value of parenting has to do with which parents have chosen to be your parents. And that's the reflection of the gospel, right? That we don't become like God just because we're human beings. Yep. You could argue that we're all biologically made in his image. It's exposure to his grace and character that shapes mm. us to be like him. And I think that's the element that's so, so fun and so wonderful and so challenging because kids pick up on the bad and the good yeah. uh, in our homes. So as always, uh, man, it seems like we're going to land in a place today where th- the big lesson is you got to know God. You got to be close to him. You got to do what you have to do in your life to, to make time to be with him and to know his word and to speak to him about the longings of your heart. Um, Church, hopefully this has been an encouragement to you. Uh, We're going to land the plane here for today. I want to say thanks again to Ian for taking time to come in and record this with me. Um, Next time uh, on the podcast, episode five, we're going to dig a little deeply into uh, Egypt's court magicians coming out of the book of Exodus. Where do they derive their power? Uh, This is something that we've dealt with on a Sunday morning at the time that you're listening to this, but we're going to dive a little deeper and look at kind of the broader scope of scripture on Uh, spiritual beings and where darkness comes from, the powers and principalities that the New Testament talks about. As always, you can submit any question, comment, or idea to info at truenorthalaska.com. Church, we love you, we are here for you, and we hope that this has been an encouragement. We'll see you soon.